Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Timothy Snyder, Professor of History at Yale University. Professor Snyder teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in modern East European political history. He is the author and co-editor of several award-winning books. Today we'll talk with Professor Snyder about his most recent book, a critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller entitled Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. Welcome Professor Snyder. Very glad to be here. Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about it. Well, this is a book about the greatest moral and demographic catastrophe in the history of the West. It begins from the observation that in a very short period of time, between 1933 and 1945, in a relatively small part of the world, between the Baltic and Black Seas, between Berlin and Moscow, about 14 million people were deliberately murdered. So the question naturally arises, why? I look at these territories rather than looking at the places that occupied them, rather than looking at just the countries. The way that we've investigated this horror previously has always had to do with particular political systems, either Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, or with particular victim groups, the Jews, the Ukrainians, the Poles, the Russians. What I've done at the, in this book is I've looked at the entire territory and at all the victims. And I've looked at both of the regimes as they crossed into the territory and tried to investigate each murderous policy of each of these two regimes. This um, subject has been the subject of many, many books. Um, you take a, mm -hmm. a little, uh, actually a very different look at it. Why did you feel it was important um, to write the book? Well, I mean, one thing which is, which, is, which is striking is that no one has ever made the point that I just made. It seems like a very simple point. 14 million people were killed in a certain time and place. That's never been noticed. It's never been noticed that of all the killing that the Germans did during the 30s and 40s, all of it was in this zone. For all practical purposes, all of it. Of all the killing that the Soviets did, a disproportionate amount was in this zone. And this was a zone where both the Germans and the Soviets were present, sometimes at the same time, sometimes one right after the other. So the initial goal of the book was to try to give a sense of the entirety mm -hmm. of this catastrophe. Another goal of the book was to try to get us out of thinking in the channeled ways that we have, that this is just about Poles or it's just about Jews, and to try to get us to understand. Also, it's important to understand that the Germans and the Soviets were interacting with each other sometimes. When we read about Nazi Germany or about Stalin's Soviet Union, it's about, mm -hmm. we usually have the impression that these things are happening on different worlds, on okay. different planets. In fact, these powers were primarily influencing the same sets of territories and the same sets of peoples. So there hasn't actually been a book which looked at the totality of this catastrophe mm -hmm. before. There hasn't been a book which looked at which looked at it from the point of view of all of the victim groups before. And there hasn't been a book which looked at the two systems, not in isolation, but in their actual presence in this region and sometimes in their interaction. Okay, let's talk about the interactions. How, how did Stalin and Hitler work together? And what mm -hmm. was their rationale for killing these millions and millions of people? Right. Th that's where things get a little bit difficult because there, there's some simple answers and those simple answers are wrong. So one simple answer is that Stalin and Hit Hitler are basically the same. One hears a lot about one hears a lot about that, especially in contemporary huh. American political life. They're basically the same. They're just they're, they're socialists or something. They're the same. That answer is incorrect. They were quite different. They had different ideologies. They had different visions of the future. 
Hitler was interested in a race war which was going to come in the future, which would allow the Germans to create a huge agrarian empire in the East, uh, bereft entirely of Jews, with the Slavs reduced to a condition of slavery or expelled. Stalin was interested in a world socialist revolution. Um, he was interested in a bright future for the working class. In order to get there, he was, he was willing to carry out vast policies of coercion and territory on his own territory. Mm -hmm. So you have two rather different views of the world, two quite different ideologies. What they have in common chiefly is territory. So the territories that Hitler wants for his future agrarian colony in the East are the same territories that Stalin has to master in order to build up his own vision of socialism in what he calls socialism in one country. Mm -hmm. So the visions are very different. Where they overlap is territory, and we tend to forget about this because territory for us is not important unless there happens to be oil underneath it. Right. And in the 1930s, food was, for the Germans and for everyone else, roughly like what oil is, us for, it was, is, is for us today. Back then, food was a kind of natural resource. You had to try to control territory in order to control food because big, important industrial countries like Germany were not self-sufficient mm -hmm. in food. So the two regimes had these different visions, and then they begin to interact. They begin to interact, uh, most importantly, at the beginning, at the kind of the intellectual level. What Stalin does, create this socialism in one country, this industrialization on the scale of the Soviet Union, Hitler wants to undo. Hitler's mm -hmm. thinking about the East is a kind of reversal. The Soviets build up cities, we shall destroy them. The Soviets create factories, we will knock them down. The Soviets increase their own population, we'll decrease the population of those territories by tens of millions wow. of people. The second point of interaction is 1939, when these two regimes uh, are de facto military allies. They find the thing which they can agree upon, which is that there's no purpose in the existence of independent Poland. So they both invade Poland, which is the only important country between them in September of 1939. They destroy it. And along the way, the Soviets destroy three other countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. This creates a kind of no man's land, a kind of new territory for conquest for both the Soviets and the Germans. And this is the beginning, really the beginning, of massive violence on the German side. And that's important because the Soviets have been killing on the scale of hundreds of thousands or millions all the way through the 19. 30s. It's the war, it's this point of contact in, the 19, in, late, in 1939, the destruction of states in 1939, which allows the Germans to catch up to the Soviets. So that's a very important point of contact. Mm -hmm. And then there's the final point of contact is 1941, when the Germans invade the Soviet Union, when they try to carry out, try to execute this policy of imperialism to colonize the Western Soviet Union. It doesn't work, but you still have po moments of interaction. The two sides provoke each other to do things they wouldn't have ordinarily done. Mm -hmm. Conditions are worse on both sides because the two countries are at war, precisely. So in the Soviet gulag, in the Soviet system of concentration camps, these are the years when people die in large numbers. People are in the gulag because of Stalin, but they die in large numbers because the Germans have invaded the Soviet Union. What the Germans do in the East is a kind of mixture of what they wanted to do to the Soviet Union. They wanted to destroy the state, starve tens of millions of people, eliminate the Jews somehow, they weren't quite sure how yet, even as late as summer 1941, and build mm -hmm. up their own colony. Mm -hmm. What they were able to do was kill Jews where they lived. And so this colonization project in the Soviet Union becomes the mass murder that we then understand as the Holocaust. Right. And, you know, that is very interesting because 
for instance, when I think of this time period, I do think of the Holocaust and Jews in particular, and you know, Anne Frank hiding. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that struck me in your book, you write, during the years that both Stalin and Hitler were in power, more people were killed in Ukraine than anywhere else in the bloodlands or in Europe or in the world. So my question is, why don't Westerners, why don't we really understand that? Um, because it was a surprise to me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and why, um, you know, how do you explain that? Yeah, the, 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 the sad truth is that our image of the Holocaust and of German killing, mm -hmm. and a whole, uh, the whole tragedy is complete. We have, we have an image of the Holocaust. We think we understand the Holocaust, but it's actually a very small fraction of what mm -hmm. happened. Anne Frank was a German Jew. German Jews were, in general, bourgeois, middle-class people like you and me, people who might have known people in other countries, people who often escaped. About half of the German Jews actually survived. Anne Frank didn't, but she represented this group which was exceptional, in fact, but which we take as typical. Why are they exceptional? Because the German Jews are such a small, 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 small <coughs> percentage of Holocaust victims. In 1939, only about a quarter of 1% of the German population is of Jewish origin. The, the Jews live in places like Poland, where there are three and a half million almost. They live in the Soviet Union, where there are even more. They live in Hungary. They live in the Baltic states. These are the real populations of Jews. These are the, these are the serious historical homelands of, of European Jews. So. The Holocaust is not primarily a tragedy that strikes German Jews, although the tragedy of German Jews is horrible. It's primarily a tragedy that strikes the Jews of Eastern Europe. And so in order to understand the Holocaust, one has to get beyond the image that we have of people going on long train trips to camps and then being killed. That was exceptional. What generally happened was that people were shot, about two and a half million people were shot very close to where they lived in mm -hmm. the occupied Soviet Union, or they were gassed in facilities in Poland, which were also generally not terribly far away from, from where they lived. Mm -hmm. What we have is the, is, is the outer edges of the Holocaust, and we've confused it with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. and and I, think I found that very fascinating yeah, because it's yeah. a whole new way to look at that period of time. Yeah, and you ask why. I mean, a lot of it has to do with what's familiar to us. Mm -hmm. I think Anne Frank is a much more, I mean, I read that when I was her age, right, when she died. That's an accessible book for, for everyone. Much less accessible for us, I think, are the experiences of Yid Yiddish-speaking Polish Jews or Russian-speaking Soviet Jews, people who are further away, perhaps, culturally, but also those lands fell behind the Iron, the Iron Curtain. There's a strange way in which the memory of what the Germans do is cut off by the Cold War. The, the one way to think about where the bloodlands are is that they're east of what used to be the Iron Curtain. The Iron Curtain falls at the western border of the bloodlands right after the war. Mm -hmm. And so the very places where the Germans killed, not just where the Soviets killed, but the places where the Germans killed, fall out of view. They fall into the shadow of the Iron Curtain. They become abstract. And when we built up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s an image of German killing, it tended to be based upon things in the West, like Anne Frank, for example, in hiding in the Netherlands, rather than on the East, which is my subject. I'm an East European historian. That's mm -hmm. why I could write a book like this. That's why I felt I had to write a book like this. Okay. Let's talk about your methodology. How did you mm -hmm. do the research for the book? Well, the first thing, I keep returning to this, but the first thing which is different about this book is that it focuses on territory. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not a history of Hitler or a history of Stalin. It's not just a history of the Soviet Union or of Nazi Germany. It's not just a history of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, and Russia, which are the countries concerned. It's not just a history of the Jews or the Poles or the Ukrainians or any people. 
It is instead a history of everyone who lives on a certain territory as they are affected by these two murderous regimes. That seems very simple, but when you do that, you're able to keep all of the victims in view. You're able to make your subject humanity rather than this person or that person or this group or that group. Mm -hmm. Now it matters who people are. It matters to which group they belong, but if your subject is everyone, that gives you an entirely different view than if your subject is one person or one group. Also, you get to see the regimes, I think, in a more interesting light. Normally, books like this jump back and forth in a way which is kind of induces intellectual jet lag from mm -hmm. Moscow to Berlin, one chapter Moscow, the next chapter Berlin. By keeping my eyes or the reader's eyes on these territories, I see both Moscow and Berlin as they are in action. I see the institutions, the groups they kill, to, they, they send to these regions in order to kill people or in mm -hmm. order to control people. And that gives you a view back through the institutions to Moscow and Berlin. But it's not this distinct separate view of the two, it's, it's the two regimes in action or sometimes in, in interaction. I then follow all of the policies that emerge, whether they're from the Soviet side or whether from the German side. It's all the same to me. Whether the two sides are interacting, which they sometimes do, or whether they're not, that's also all the same to me. I'm just trying to observe and note what each of the policies mm -hmm. are. So what does that require? Well, I've spent an awful lot of time in East European archives, and some of the work on particular policies does come from my own archival work. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it comes from taking the research of historians from Israel or Germany or Russia or Ukraine or Poland, whatever it might be, and putting it together and trying to show what they're, trying to give a more complete picture of each of the killing policies, whether it's the famine in Ukraine or 1933 or whether it's the Holocaust from 1941 to 1945, but also trying to show how these policies fit together as sometimes they did. So this means using an awful lot of languages. It also means opening oneself up to a lot of different and, and often very competitive discourses about mm -hmm. what, what happened ba back then in the hope of fulfilling the promise of all history, which is that you can, tell a s you can tell one sensible story which brings in every perspective and which is faithful to the facts. Mm -hmm. Okay, and in doing the research, did you, come in, uh, did you come across anything that really surprised you? What was the most surprising thing in writing the book? Thing, things surprise me all the time. That's that's what I, I would say. Things. I mean, the book, the book surprises people. One of uh, you 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 mentioned one of the yes, things that surprised exactly, you. Yeah. yeah. I, many people have said things to me about this book before they've read it to the effect that, oh, I know what your book is going to be about. No one has ever said that to me after reading the book. Mm -hmm. That is, no one has ever said this book was about what I thought it was going to be about, or this book said what I thought it mm -hmm. was going to be said. What, what, what I thought it was going to say. And the reason for that is that so much of what we think is actually so constrained and so limited by the national or by the ideological perspectives. So I was surprised all of the time, and I tried to make what surprised me seem natural and plausible to readers, because I think in order to rescue this, in order to understand this, we have to have a completely different perspective from the perspectives that we have. So my research was continual surprise, and if it weren't for that sense of surprise, I wouldn't have felt that I had to write the book. One reason why I felt I had to write the book was that the scale of the tragedy is just so great. Another reason I felt I had to write the book was because I thought that only an East Europeanist would be able to do something like this. Mm -hmm. I think the Russianists and the Germanists have told us things that are very important. Historians of Jewish life have told us things that are very important. But only an East Europeanist is going to be able to bring all these different territories into the picture and, and, and mediate, as it were, among all of these different per perspectives. But it was the attempt to try to make my own sense of surprise about how little we know or how, what we, how, how partial our knowledge is to try to, make, to try to undo that, to try to reverse that. That was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. So I can't really point to any particular moment of surprise. I think one of the things which came clear to me in writing this book that is crucial 
um, is the, the density of suffering in certain places. You mentioned Ukraine. Ukraine was the worst place to be between 1933 and 1945. The worst place to be in the Second World War, 41 to 45, 39 to 45, um, was Belarus. And no one knows that. I think that might be something which I figured out early on, which continues to surprise people. The places, our images of the war turn out to be totally inadequate to the actual suffering. And the places where the suffering was the worst, Belarus, are almost totally alien mm -hmm. to us. So there's so much rebalancing to be done. And when you say suffering, in, in reading the book, many people were starved to death mm -hmm. versus gassed or shot. Is, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So just complete and utter lack of food. Yeah. No, that's a really important point uh, for a couple reasons. One of them is that it reminds us how different that world was from our world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, you know, I, I'm sure you don't count calories. I count calories, <laughs> oh, yes, and I and do. I count. <laughs> but the reason I count calories is the reason you know, right? Mm -hmm. um, German economic planners also counted calories, but not because they were worried their people were going to be too fat. Because mm -hmm. they were worried literally about having enough calories, so that oxen and mules and horses and cattle and human beings working on farms or in factories would have enough energy. Mm -hmm. Calories a unit of energy. They were concerned about food, quite literally the way we are concerned about energy, if not more so. Food was a way to imagine future development for both the Nazis and for the Soviets. In the Soviet Union, trying to control Ukraine, the, a place which was very fertile, um, was like trying to control, say, Saudi Arabia or Iraq, or more so, because this is a place um, which is within your own country. If you can control those people, you can control their soil, then you can industrialize. Mm -hmm. you can, if you can do what you want with them, you can do what you want with the future. That's okay. the way Stalin thought. And when they don't seem to be doing what you want, you then take everything from them and allow them to starve. And this is a extremely painful, and this is the second thing, why this is worth stressing, why it's such a good point. This is an extremely horrible way to die. It's so horrible that in a way it's just flowed away from our own accounts of these things. We, we think we understand, I don't think we really do, but we think we understand gassing, we think we understand shooting. But what it's actually like to starve or to make someone else starve to death, it really, it's a really difficult thing to describe. I spent a lot of effort trying, trying to get that right. Mm -hmm. And it is such a central experience. More people were starved in Europe in the middle of the 20th century than were either shot or gassed. It was actually the leading method of deliberately killing people. And both the Soviets and the Germans did it on the scale of millions. Final question. Conclusions? What do you conclude in your book? What do I conclude? Mm. Well, the, there's, there's an overall argument about the presence of two different, very different, but competing ideological visions of, of radical change. There's an overall argument about the relevance of territory for the people who live upon it and for the people who wish to conquer it. But, and in the conclusion, I work my way through some of what I take to be the misunderstandings about the various individual policies, whether it's Soviet terror, Soviet famine, German deliberate starvation, the Holocaust. But where I take the reader, or try to take the, the reader in the conclusion is where I begin the book, namely, with what I take to be the fundamental task of history as a humanity when dealing with a subject like this. So we started with, with the number uh, of 14 million, which is a colossal number. It's an overwhelming number. I think mm -hmm. it's much more than we can really process. I don't think we can process 1 million or 3 million or 6 million, let alone 14 million. 
And that 14 million is a kind of inheritance. It's what we have from National Socialism. It's what we have from Stalinism. It's what we have from Hitler and Stalin. It's what we have from this experience. But the experience is so horrifying that we don't have a way of getting into it. So where I return to in the conclusion is the method not of beginning from these huge numbers, but from, from beginning from trying to break the big numbers down into smaller numbers. Mm -hmm and the individual policies, and then breaking the individual policies down into individual actions. And not treating the actions only from the point of view of those who did the killing, but trying to understand also the lives up to the moment when they are killed of the people who will be murdered. So that insofar as we can, we treat the individual, the victim, not just the victim, but primarily the victim, the victim in the first place, the victim as an individual human being. So that the, the prose of the book is a kind of effort of recovery. And that's a method. You asked about method earlier. That's a method that I'm taking the unit of concern in the book is the individual human life mm -hmm. as opposed to an ideology or a nation. That's the unit of concern. But it's also the moral conclusion of the book that we ought to try, and my way of trying to do it is history. Other people have other ways, but we ought to try to turn these huge numbers back into people, one right. person at a time, insofar as we can. Okay. Thank you so much for being here today and, sh and sharing some of your work. Thank you. For more information about Professor Snyder and his research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.